Today's scripture reading is from Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin into the flesh. In order that righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. <clears throat> Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, the, if in the fact that the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that, that who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Wesley Ann. So um, I'm excited, uh, and the reason why I'm excited is that today we're starting a new series. Uh, if you're allowed to have a favorite chapter of the Bible, this is by far my favorite chapter of the Bible. I think it actually sums up the whole redemption story in just a few verses. But um, we are doing a series, I think it's five or six weeks, on Romans chapter 8. We're calling the series The Greatest Chapter Ever Written. And uh, so what I want to do is start the series by asking you this question. What if you dropped it in a bowl of sewage would be so valuable to you that you would do whatever you needed to in order to retrieve it? I would guess that most of us, if we dropped a quarter uh, into a bowl of sewage, we probably would just let it go and not retrieve it. But if we dropped a wedding ring or an engagement ring or some other valuable item in there, we would probably go through what it takes in order to get that thing back. And so, Ravi Zacharias has this uh, story, it's a true story, uh, about a friend of his named Hien Pham. And Hien Pham is Vietnamese, and during the Vietnam War in particular, uh, as a Christian, he would sort of secretly and hidden to the Vietnamese government translate to the Vietnamese people on behalf of American missionaries uh, and English-speaking missionaries, one of whom was Ravi Zacharias. And the story of Hien Pham, uh, I think, you know, there's probably no better story to emphasize the weight and significance and the treasure uh, of the chapter in the Bible uh, that we're about to look at uh, is. And so, Hien Pham was caught translating English uh, to the Vietnamese people as, as, as English-speaking missionaries spoke the gospel. And so, he was imprisoned for that by his own people, and he was subjected to awful conditions, as you might imagine. And in order to sort of deprogram him from his Christian thinking and to what was thought to be his support of the enemy, the Americans, 
what happened was uh, they assigned Hien Pham to read every day uh, communist and Marxist uh, propaganda and writings. They wouldn't allow him to read anything else but communist and Marxist stuff, and they subjected him to the worst kind of work conditions. And there was one point at which Hien Pham became so discouraged with, with, with what was happening that he was just this close, he says, to renouncing his faith in God, renouncing his Christianity. And there was actually one day where he was so low that he, he said, I am not going to pray anymore. In fact, maybe God doesn't even exist. So, so I'm just going to stop praying and I'm going to see what happens. And, and then the very next morning, he was assigned to clean the, the toilets that the officers would use. And, and uh, they, they were latrines. They were not flushable. You had to manually clean them out. And so he was given that duty. And he noticed one of the cans overflowing with refuse and toilet paper. And in the middle of the toilet paper was something that looked like one page with text on it. And he looked closely and he saw that at the top of that page, it said Romans chapter 8. And so he reached in, he pulled it out very carefully, held it up, and started reading. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And then he read on and on. And then he read, For I am convinced that nothing in all creation shall ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so he dropped to his knees. He asked God for forgiveness. And then he turned to the commander and made a request of the commander that he be allowed to permanently be the one assigned to clean the latrines. Because it also became, uh, you know, clear to him that there was an officer who every day was ripping out a page or two from the Bible, using it as toilet paper, and, and, and stuffing it in the latrine. And so each and every day, Hien would pull out the portion of Scripture from the toilet, from the refuse, clean it off, and add it to his collection. And so... First question to ask as we enter into this treasure, what's your faith worth to you? How far would you go in order to protect and preserve your connection with the God who says that there's nothing in all creation that could ever separate you from His love? One man's trash, one man's toilet paper is another man's lifeline and treasure. And so, what is our faith worth to us? We're calling Romans chapter 8 the greatest chapter ever written for a lot of reasons, one of which is we're not the first. There are a lot of people who have, have spoke of this chapter in this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of them. Uh, Johannes Sebastian Bach actually composed an entire cantata based on this chapter. N.T. Wright uh, said this about Romans 8, it's a feast of Pauline themes that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. If the church could hoist its sails and catch this wind, there's no knowing what might happen. And so, let's dive in. I've got three headings to start, and, and really these first 11 verses, there's so much in here. Don't be frustrated if you leave realizing I didn't touch on all of it. Um, we're going to try to unfold it in the next several weeks. Uh, and, and I'm going to try to hit every theme that you see in these verses, but I can only focus on a few um, 
you know, because there's just so much in here. It's inexhaustible. But I want to look at three headings. Number one, a new nature we're given, a new ambition, and a permanent covering. All these things have to do with what life becomes like when the Holy Spirit enters your life. So, a new nature. The central subject of Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I appreciated Pastor Casey referring to the Spirit as a he, not as an it. Uh, he's not some impersonal force. He is a person. He is a, 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 a relational being who also happens to live inside everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. Verse 2 talks about how the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 4 talks about walking according to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is life and peace. Verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, He is a life-giving Spirit. And then verse 11, He is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, and He will also give life to your mortal bodies. There's so much in there, so much. Um, but what I want to focus on right now is, is what happens to you. What's, what's, a, what's a sign that, 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 that occurs when, when the Holy Spirit enters your life? You know, one of the commentaries that, that I read, I, I think, help, helped me um, you know, kind of get my arms around this as much as that's possible, and that is that you know, the commentary describes life in the Holy Spirit as the highest form of life. Now, you know, if you're a biologist, perhaps you're, you're, you're keenly aware of the fact that uh, there are all sorts of life forms, and, and, and they come in variations. And some life forms have a greater capacity to fully live than others. Take plants, for example. Plants can only process one aspect or two or three aspects of the environment, really. They're, they're sensitive to light, they're sensitive to heat, uh, but they're not sensitive to other things because they don't have five senses like uh, animals and human beings do. And so, so the next, um, you know, life form above plants would be animals. Animals have senses. They can see, they can hear, they have a, a sense of touch, they have um, sort of, you know, instincts and, and, and emotions that go with those instincts. Animals are aware of a whole lot of things that plants are not, like, like a piece of steak in front of them, for instance. A plant would be completely oblivious to a piece of steak right in front of it, whereas a dog is, is salivating, right? And then the next form of life, the next highest form of life is human life. Like animals, we have five senses, but unlike animals, we as human beings are generally sensitive to things like justice and injustice, right and wrong, the difference between the truth and a lie, the difference between ugliness and beauty. Human beings have a greater capacity, again, to, to process our environment and to, to live fully because of these things. And what the commentary that I, that I was reading says is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit as a human being is an even higher dimension of life than, than all of the other life forms because when you're filled with the, the Holy Spirit, you're, you're awakened to and drawn to the realities of God in ways that you were not before you were filled with the Holy Spirit. For example, you now are beginning to embrace the wisdom that you were once blind to. Now you are beginning to hate the sin that you once enjoyed. 
Now you are beginning to treasure the truth and the holiness and righteousness that you once resisted. It's all a process, but, but there's this trigger. There's this, like, you know, like, like Casey was saying, the, the electricity is on now. And, and there's movement that goes with that. There's animation. There's, there's, there's light and heat and, and, and energy that wasn't there before. And, you know, in many ways, life in the Holy Spirit from the outside um, doesn't make sense. And, and actually, a lot of it seems foolish. Uh, maybe like, you know, to, to some of us, it may seem foolish to uh, run marathons. Why would anybody want to run 26 miles? Why would anybody want to subject themselves to, you know, the sweat and the early mornings and the time that it takes to train to run marathons and become just part of this whole way of life? Why would anybody want to do that? But if you run marathons, you're, you're an insider, and, and, and those questions in ways that they didn't used to now, now sound a little bit silly to you. Like, there's no better way to live than, than to be in shape like this, to be able to run like the wind, to be able to tell people that I ran Boston and New York and Chicago and so on, and, 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 and have those stories and those experiences. There's, there's no comparison to life before I did this and, and to life now. Another sort of uh, real-time example we have is Pastor David Filson, right? Have you guys noticed what's been happening to his biceps the last two or three years, right? You've been noticing all the tight t-shirts David's wearing these days, where he used to wear the, you know, the televangelist suit. Um, sorry, David, wherever you are. But, but, but the reason why David wears tight t-shirts is there is no such thing as a t-shirt that's not tight on David, because he has made a commitment. He is all in with something. You know, two or three years ago, he decided, I'm going to get in shape. And once he got in shape, there's no turning back. I'm going to stay this way because I, I cannot go back to Egypt. I cannot go back to, to life before the vitality that I now get to experience in these biceps and pecs. Dude benches over 400 pounds, over 400 pounds. So, you know, I, I can't imagine, those of us who know David well can't imagine him going back. But we also, many of us, can't imagine us entering into the life that he has now entered into um, because it takes a different way of looking at life. And that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit does to you. It, it, it creates in you a different way of looking at everything. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is C.S. Lewis's way of saying, because of the Holy Spirit, I am awake now. I'm awake. I'm awake to God. The invisible God is more real to me, Lewis would say, than, than, than the things I can see and touch. He is more real to me than these things. Suffering takes on a new dimension. Without the Spirit, we are, we are siding with Macbeth. Eventually, we'll, 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 we'll kind of land where Macbeth did, that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But then the Holy Spirit comes in, and all of a sudden, boom, Romans 5, it makes sense now that we rejoice even in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Whole different way of seeing things. We're awakened to the Bible you know, before the Holy Spirit came, the Bible seemed really weird. And admittedly, after the Holy Spirit comes, you know, the parts of the Bible still seem weird, and we just have to lean into them and, 
and, and, and press in and seek the kingdom of God until God turns on the light bulbs progressively. But, but since the Holy Spirit came, the, 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 the typical experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit is all of a sudden the Exodus story of, of people, a whole nation of people being delivered through a parted sea, walking through walls of water, you're actually bought in in ways that you were skeptical about before, or a dude getting swallowed by a fish and spit out on, on, on a seashore in the story of Jonah, or a virgin birth, you know, that we, we celebrate every Christmas, or, or a resurrection, or the notion that the hope of the universe rests on the shoulders of a first-century, dark-skinned, Middle Eastern refugee who spent most of his life poor, who never spoke a word of English, and the hope of the world, including any hope that I might have, rests on his shoulders? Love your enemies? Consider others as more significant, more important than yourself? Give away large sums of your money? I mean, this stuff from the outside doesn't make any sense. But when you're on the inside, it's very easy to believe that, that if God has the power to create everything by breathing, then He certainly has the power to suspend His own natural laws that He put in, in place to, in a sense, contradict science because He created science in order to demonstrate to a weary world that He exists and that He's there and that He's not silent. But this stuff doesn't make sense until the Holy Spirit comes in. The harder parts of the Bible even have a drawing effect on you. The harder parts of the Bible turn you into a revisionist, but it's not you revising the Bible, it's you surrendering yourself and saying, saying to Scripture, revise me, where I don't see it, where I don't get that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, your ways are higher than my ways, revise me, correct me, change me, be the boss of me, because I know that my most healthy, alive, awakened self is going to be the one that is more and more and more surrendered to the stuff in here that I understand and the stuff in here that I don't. We also become awakened to other people who belong to Christ, other people who have the Spirit. There's this attractional reality that happens where, for example, if I am a Bellmead Republican standing next to a North Nashville Democrat, I will feel more kindredness with that person in Christ than I do with my next-door neighbors who are outside of Christ. That is a dynamic that happens. You feel more solidarity with those you have nothing in common with but Jesus than you do with people you have everything in common with except Jesus. You start to… It, it's, it's not… it shouldn't be lost on us that the you, that the second person plural you that Paul is speaking to here are Romans, Gentiles. Greatest divisions existed in, in, that, in that point of time, the greatest social divisions, the greatest divisions between tribes, between people groups, included the division between Jews and Gentiles. They hated each other. They were the punchline of each other's jokes. They were the object of each other's cynicism and scorn. And yet, here we have it, Paul, the Jew of Jews, becoming the ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to the complete other. You know, North Nashville reaching out to Belmede, 
and Bellmead saying I'm in, or vice versa. Because you can have nothing in common but have Jesus, in Christ, Jesus Christ in common and you have everything in common. It completely changes your posture. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this story. Martin Lloyd-Jones ran in elite circles. He was a very accomplished physician, as many of you might know, uh, here in Nashville, the world epicenter of healthcare. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was called into pastoral ministry, and his first assignment was, was this small uh, sort of fishing town on the shores of Wales. And all of his con- none of his congregants were educated. None of his congregants had money or, or access to, to elite social circles, none of them. But Lloyd-Jones would grow to say that, or would come to say that, 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 that at a certain point he realized that in Christ he felt more kindred, kindredness and more commonality with a poor fisher, fisherwoman on the shores of Wales in his congregation than he ever felt solidarity with, with, with the elites that he, he runs with who don't have Christ. There is something about the Holy Spirit that, that meshes you together, that tethers you to people who are wildly different than you are in every other way, and yet if you have Christ in common, you are family, and you start to feel that. And then it also awakens you, life in the Spirit does, to people on the outside. There's a compassionate concern that starts to develop for people who are in a hard position, i.e., especially the position of being without Christ and without this animation. If you go to the right, you've got Romans 9, where Paul the Jew is, is, it says, in sorrow and in deep anguish because of his Jewish friends that he grew up with, that he went, you know, was educated alongside, that he was on the same career path with, etc. He says, I have unceasing sorrow and anguish that my brothers are cut off from Christ, so much so that if it were possible, I would relinquish my own salvation. I myself would be cut off from Christ so that they could be drawn in. There's this compassion, this, this otherworldly compassion that, that, that develops over time as the Spirit inhabits. So you have a new nature, the highest dimension. You see things more and more and more as God does. But second, there's a new ambition that comes along with all of this. And the ambition is this, with the Holy Spirit, you become more protective of your own holiness and more aggressive against your own sinfulness more protective of your own holiness, more aggressive against your own sinfulness. In verses 3 and following, it says, in sending Jesus, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then Paul draws a contrast between the, the mind that is set on the flesh, which which leads to sort of the existential experience as well as the very real experience of death. Death and decay, anticlimax, characterizes the mind set on the flesh, the mind set on the old way of, of doing things and of seeing things before the Spirit came in. Our moments of amnesia, that's the mind set on the flesh. Our amnesia about the gospel, our amnesia about the treasure of Romans 8, our amnesia about the riches of Jesus Christ. It's death. Whereas the mindset on the Spirit, Paul says, will lead to the experience of life and peace. Life and peace. Life and peace. 
And he says in verse 9 that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And if you, if you study the Greek language here, he's not talking about an occasional visitor. He's talking about a permanent resident who will never leave. He will never get out of your system once he gets into your system. Think of, think of it like an incurable virus. An incurable virus is an unstoppable force. Over time, an incurable virus is going to take over every aspect of your body, and it will drive you over time increasingly into a state of unhealth. Now, the Holy Spirit has the opposite effect. It's similar to a virus in that it enters you. He, he enters you. The life of the Spirit enters you like a virus would. But over time, as He takes over your entire system, over time, like a virus would, instead of leading you away from health, it, it le- He leads you to more and more and more health and higher dimensions of, 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 of health and, and, and being fully human and fully, more fully in the image of God. The theologians uh, talk about the communicable attributes of God. Those are the aspects of God's character that He delights to pass on and and, and inject into the systems of His people who are filled with the Spirit. And and the communicable uh, attributes are manifest in what Galatians 5 describes as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's also the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 where there's a whole lot of overlapping attributes there with the fruit of the Spirit. You know, love is patient, love is kind, and so on. Keeps no record of wrongs, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and so on. This is what we call sanctification. You know, justification, you know, this no condemnation language that there's no condemnation, there's no shame that hangs over you if you belong to Jesus. And that's true on your best day and it's true on your worst day. You're covered. I'll get to that momentarily. That's justification. It's a one-time event. You're declared righteous. You're declared blameless in the sight of God forever, period. But then after justification starts the process called sanctification where over time, your greatest pleasure becomes being led by the Spirit. That's the God-desiring aspect of you. That's the influence of the Holy Spirit inside of you, which will lead also to life and, and peace. In the same way that Eric Liddell said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God, you say, when I obey the Scriptures of God, I feel His pleasure. Because I feel like I'm doing what I've I've been made to do. So your greatest pleasure on the one hand in sanctification is that you're led by the Spirit to press more and more and more into that God-desiring aspect of what the Spirit's brought into your life. And your greatest sorrow is when you get that amnesia that I was talking about a moment ago and, and you revert back to living according to the flesh, the old nature, the sin desiring aspect of our existence, which, as Paul says, leads to death. It makes you feel nauseated. makes you feel nauseated. So, my daughter Ellie and I were at a theme park uh, yesterday with with some other dads and daughters in Atlanta, Six Flags Over Georgia, right? You know you're at a theme park when the most healthy thing that you can find to eat is fried chicken. 
And, and so, I mean, I, I felt like, and the, the, the dad that I drove back with, you know, with our daughters, we were just like, oh, we, we need a cleanse. We need a smoothie made by that blender Casey brought out. Like, we, we just, because we're, we've become accustomed to more healthy things, like flaxseed and other boring stuff like that. And that's what happens when, when a spirit-embodied person lets sin in. The, one way you know that, that you're alive in the Spirit is that you are nauseated by your own choices to revert back. You know, if you, if you want to see a picture of this, go back one chapter in Romans 7 to, to the Apostle Paul as he talked about his own ongoing struggle with covetousness, with breaking the Tenth Commandment in his heart. It nauseates him. He's deeply concerned that what his, what his inmost desire that is driven by the Holy Spirit says that, that, that you are to flee toward holiness and away from sin. His actions sometimes betray. He's nauseated about that, even to the point where he, he makes this declarative statement, wretched man that I am, who will separate me from this body of death? Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and then we get Romans 8, which begins no condemnation and ends no separation. That's the answer. But because he's so tuned in to the love of God for him, he is nauseated by the thought of betraying God in any way, shape, or form. If there is any practice of sin that, 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 just, that doesn't trigger something in us that makes us want to run back to life in the Spirit, that, that is cause for great concern. We're going to fall, but the question is, what happens to our disposition when we do? Are we bored? Are we, are we ambivalent to the things of the kingdom? Or is there this nauseating effect of sin that drives us back like it did with David after his adultery and murder? David says in Psalm 51 as he reflects on that, a broken and contrite spirit, Lord, you will not despise. It's not, it's not my religious behavior that you desire. You desire a broken and contrite spirit then he goes on to pray, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice he doesn't say restore to me your salvation. Never lost it. He says restore to me the joy of your salvation. The greatest fear for somebody who is filled with the Spirit is losing fellowship with God, you know, reverting back to snack food, to fried chicken. You know, when, when you know better and, and when you know you have access to better, your greatest fear is forsaking the, the, the joys of fellowship with God, and your greatest pleasure is preserving that fellowship through obedience, through cooperation with what the Spirit of God desires to do in you. So you have a new nature, a new ambition, but lastly, a permanent covering to, to, to carry you through this clunky process of simultaneously adoring and betraying Christ all the time every day of your life. That's what life in the Spirit is. You're, you're constantly betraying and adoring Christ. And the idea of sanctification is the adoration factor grows and the and the betrayal factor shrinks over time. But in the meantime, you've got a permanent covering. What a perfect chapter to follow the last parts of the Sermon on the Mount with. 
Last parts of the Sermon on the Mount, so heavy if you were here. And after Romans 7, so heavy. And now Paul explodes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. See, the reason why a Christian is attracted to righteousness is because a Christian is already covered with righteousness, clothed with it. This little phrase in verse 2, one of, one of Paul's most repeated phrases, Kevin Twitt, is this Paul's most repeated phrase in Christ? Okay, thumbs up from Kevin Twitt. You can take it to the bank. In Christ Jesus. This means you're in Him. You're, you're covered by Him. You're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It means when God looks at you, Everything that's true of Jesus in His sight is true of you. It's true on your best day. It's true on your worst day. Imagine it like this. A father gives an extra-large shirt and and a pair of size 12 shoes to his six-year-old boy. Both are immensely huge on the boy, but the boy is still motivated every morning of his life because he's so tuned in to the love of his dad, and he's so tuned in to how much he wants to become like his hero that he gets up every day and puts his little feet in those big shoes and puts his little body in, in that big old shirt, and it just completely envelops him, and it's clunky, clunky looking, it's awkward looking, and yet he looks in the mirror and he thinks, oh, for the day that I will fit into all of these. And he starts every day reminding himself that his growth trajectory is headed toward fitting the image of his father and the clothing that his father has already put upon Him. You know, for us, there is never a moment when we're not covered. There is never a moment when when His clothes are, are, are not covering us and how small we are and how far away we are from being like Christ. I love what our friend Rankin Wilburn uh, says. I've, I've said this before. It bears repeating a million times. God does not love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ, and that is always 100%. Your standing in Jesus Christ is fixed. That means that God is just as pleased with you on your very worst and most rebellious day as He was pleased with Jesus as Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He is that pleased all the time. It is a process, and this reality covers us and protects us from the darts of shame, the darts of accusation, the darts of condemnation. You can't really be a Christian. You couldn't really be a follower. Look at you. You're a hypocrite. Yeah, you're right. That's why I need Christ. That's why I need Him. We are covered as we grow into those shoes and as we grow into that shirt. It's a process. It's not immediate. I love how Bono put it. (laughs) Your nature, Bono said, is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of people who have had life-changing, miraculous turnarounds. People set free from addiction after a single prayer. Relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that I was lost, I am found stuff, it is probably more accurate for me to say, I was really lost. I'm a little, I'm a little bit less so at the moment. 
and then a little less and a little less again. That, to me, is the spiritual life, the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me into a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. It's not over yet. And so in the meantime, what we are given the privilege to do is tap into what the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 said is the immense patience of our Father in heaven. And the immense patience is proven to us in this, and this is what qualifies us to come to the table of the Lord. Jesus was the ultimate prisoner of war who dove in to the sewage. He dove right in because he saw a treasure there, and you were part of that treasure, and so was I. He dove into the sewage of a fallen world and a fallen humanity, pulled us out, washed us off, added us to his collection. What could be better news than that, and what could be a better covering than that? That we were loved and continue to be loved in this way. Will you pray with me? Here is a trustworthy saying the Apostle Paul wrote, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I receive mercy so that in me, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect, immense patience as an example to those who would believe. Lord, why would we not believe this? Why would we not enter in? Grant us your spirit like a virus that leads us not towards sickness but toward health. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.